All right. Well, God in his strange providence has ordained for us to meet via live stream. Uh, This was definitely not our plan as an organization, but yeah, there's some upsides to this that are maybe silver linings, but we're glad that you're able to join us and glad you're able to be a part of this. Today, in my session, I want to talk about historic missions in today's missions world. And I'm going to nail uh, or go after three particular points, preparation, patience, and perseverance. And I, I'm pretty excited about this topic because the tie-in from historic missions, what I would say historic Christianity, to what is happening today on the mission field sometimes doesn't cross over very well. And I'm, I'm very hopeful that I'm going to be able to show that these are not radius values. These aren't values that are distinctive only to radius, but we find these values, these three values of preparation, patience, and perseverance. We find these in the scripture and we find them in uh, historic missionaries. And so I'm going to do a lot of quoting. I want to go back to some of the ones that we know, especially uh, from the late 18th century, all the way up through the middle of the 19th. Uh, some of the missionaries that we would know by name, but their practices, maybe we're, we're unfamiliar with some of the ways that they exhibited some of these values. So radius, um, man, I'll just be honest, radius sometimes get a little, a little bit of flack for being the guys that are old school, that, uh, one of the ones I, I think that cracks me up the most is the guys who like to go slow. Uh, that's just not the case. And I, I want to show why these values of preparation, patience, perseverance, these are things that are hallmarks that we try to put into the student's DNA because we see these as biblical values. We see these as values that are exhibited in previous generations. So I'm going to go after that uh, pretty strong. So those values, and then coupled with some of the historic stories, there's going to be a couple stories here, especially uh, from previous missionaries that I want to get into, and just kind of looking at the ambassadors from previous generations, I I think that'll hopefully bring some of this into a concrete format. I'm going to try really hard to strive to be as specific as possible, so I'm not speaking pie in the sky, and we're getting into things that yeah, don't make any sense. They're just generalities. So going after those three specific things. So here we go. Uh, number one, preparation. Preparation. When I, when I speak about preparation, I'm talking, and I want to make this clear, I'm talking about formal and informal missionary training. Informal missionary training in that they're members of a local church. They've sat in on some elder meetings. They've been discipled by the leaders in their church. They've been discipled by a pastor, by a family member. They've gone through that informal process and formal missionary training. They do understand the value of good biblical training, whether that's at a seminary or a Bible school, and then training for a specific task. That's where a school like Radius would come into it. That's the formal part of it, getting educated on what it will take to make it to these language groups and not just to make it, but to stay. And so those are the two sides, that formal and informal. And I want to acknowledge up front, when I'm talking about training, you have to understand that Radius has a very specific goal. Our goal is not to get to the countries and present the gospel to the general church or to the language group that we find dominant there in the country, the gateway language. We're looking at going past that to the second le- to the second level, to the minority people group. And so there's always this kind of balance that you have to have, because here's the flat out truth. The older somebody gets, the harder it is to learn a language. And so you have to balance training and you have to balance time. 
there, and I'll get to Hudson Taylor and his thoughts on learning a language and how age comes into that, but that is something that we do have to take into account. So I do want that to be in the back of our minds when we talk about preparation. But I think it's wise for us to always look at erring on the side of more training rather than less. 60 to 70% of missionaries, this is the, the statistics that I found uh, prior to about three weeks ago, don't last longer than two years on the field. Three weeks ago, I got a report that says the number's high as 75%. 75, think about that for a second. 75% of missionaries heading overseas don't last longer than two years. And the common denominator that we're finding underneath these things is the lack of training, the lack of preparation before they head overseas. So this preparation, this idea of getting there and staying, this is something that we really have to think seriously as North American church pastors, as pastors around the world, sending out members to different locations. How do we get them not just to go, but to go and to stay? Head and shoulders, the common, the most common remark that I hear from Radius students after they finish their first semester with us is, I didn't know what I didn't know. And that's the fear of sending missionaries overseas without adequate training. You don't know what you don't know. You're getting into a world where there are factors that you haven't even contemplated that are going to come into your world. They're going to affect the way you do ministry and to prepare you for those things. 2 Timothy 2.15 says this, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. That's the goal, to be an approved worker who correctly handles the word of truth, who understands the long-term implications of being in ministry. But I find that there is this idea, especially among younger people, and I speak at a variety of colleges and college-age events, there is this desire, this zeal to get to the field that is tremendously commendable, but that zeal without knowledge drives a lot of missions today to get out there, to get going, to do things quickly. And zeal without knowledge produces really poor results long-term in missions. The most common answer I give when a young person comes to me and they go, well, what about, what about just going? I just feel like the Lord has asked me just to go. The most common answer I give, look at the scriptures and look at the stories in scripture that we see of men being trained and the amount of time from the time that God marked them for a specific task to the time that they actually began that. Let me go through a few of these. Uh, Joseph, two years in prison. Jacob. 14 years working for his father-in-law, looking after sheep. Moses, 40 years from the time he killed the Egyptian to God spoke to him at the burning bush. King David, 25 years from the time David is anointed by King Saul or by Samuel till the time he actually becomes king. 25 years. He knew he was king and he still waits 25 years. God has him in this holding pattern for 25 years. I'm not advocating that for missionary training. I'm just saying this: there's a precedence here of men taking time to be well prepared by their God before they step into ministry. I love this quote from Ian Murray's excellent biography on Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says this, you will always find that the men who God has signally used or have been used have studied the most 
known their scriptures the best, and given time to preparation. The Spirit generally uses a man's best preparation. It's not the Spirit or preparation. It's the preparation plus the anointing that the Holy Spirit alone can supply. And here's the deal. For the radius context and what we're talking about, what we're training people for, to see the gospel go to every tongue, tribe, and nation, we have to acknowledge this. There's a reason why the last 3,100 language groups left on the face of the earth are the last ones. It's not by accident. This isn't random. They're the last ones because they're hardest to get to. They're the last ones because they live in hostile countries, hostile to the gospel. Their physical surroundings are very, very difficult. It will take uncommon men and women with an uncommon knowledge of the scriptures and an uncommon level of training to make it to these locations, to stay, and to see a church planted. This is not common in our time. It runs counter. Everything in our culture screams speed and methodology, and that works wonderful if you're selling hamburgers and computers. It works horribly if you're working with the gospel. The gospel takes time. And the preparation to know how to get in among that people group and how to stay, that will only come as we have ambassadors that are understanding the hurdles and the challenges that they're stepping into. One of the best biographies that I've been blessed with over the past uh, few years is on John Payton. Not Patton, Payton. I was reminded by my Scottish brethren uh, that Patton is, I do the Scottish accent now, but I, I will refrain from that. Patton is the general. Peyton is the missionary. So John Peyton, John Peyton, uh, for those of you that don't know, in 1958, he moved to the island of Tana in the New Hebrides. Now it's called Vanuatu. Three months after arriving there, his son was born, but tragedy struck. And 19 days later, his wife died within a month and his uh, son soon followed. Peyton would remarry and have 10 children during his missionary service. Only five of them would live past childhood. Peyton labored in Tana and was nearly killed multiple times, chased days into the jungle, out onto reefs, up into trees. He saw little fruit during his four years on Tana, and th uh, through threats of his life, he ended up relocating to the island of Aniwa. He had already learned the language of Tana, but he and his second wife threw themselves into language study and after three years were fluent in the language of Ania. They developed an alphabet in the Aniwa language, and after 34 years of battling disease, near death many times, saw the completion of the Aniwa New Testament. Near the end of his time, he saw nearly the entire island of Aniwa make professions of faith, established 25 other mission teams on surrounding islands, and he raised funds for two ships that serviced the islands and wrote an autobiography that still resonates today. And here's Peyton's words on his time of preparation prior to heading to the New Hebrides. He says this, All through my city mission period, I was painfully carrying on my studies, first at the University of Glasgow, and thereafter at the Reformed Presbyterian Divinity Hall, and also medical classes at Anderson College, with the exception of one session, when my failure of health broke me down and I struggled patiently on through 10 years. Get that? 10 years. The work was hard and most exacting, and I, have never, and I never attained the scholarship for which I thirsted, being but poorly grounded in my younger days. I yet had much of the Master's blessed presence in all of my efforts, which many better scholars sorely lacked 
and I was sustained by the lofty aim which burned all these years bright within my soul, namely, to be qualified as a preacher of the gospel of Christ, to be owned and used by him for the salvation of perishing men. Church pastors, potential missionaries, let's not overlook adequate preparation for our individuals. Let's couple zeal with knowledge so that when our ambassadors, when our members, when our brothers and sisters, when our sons and daughters head to the field, there is a realistic chance, an expectation that they make it and they stay. Let's not look at that time as time poorly spent, but time of preparation so that when fruit comes, we understand it was the seeds that went in the ground prior. It was the time that we took to sow and to prepare the ground. That time of preparation will not be lost. Historic value number two, patience. This is the one I think that is probably the most pressing need for our, missionary, uh, for our missionaries in this time, in our present culture more than any other time. Oh, for the young person who is impressed by the value of patience, patience in marriage, patience in parenting, patience in missions, patience in waiting on the only one who is able to produce true, lasting fruit. It seems that our culture is set up diametrically opposed, again, to the value of patience. Fruit that is true, fruit that is lasting, rarely comes about quickly. It takes time. Rather than speak in generalities on this, I want to talk about two specific areas that I see as the hardest, just seeing all of the different agencies that come down and speak at Radius and seeing Radius and seeing other training programs and then seeing the churches that support all of these endeavors, the two areas that seem to be dominant in the missions culture in North America today and talk about why patience in these two particular areas seem to be so sorely lacking. Number one, patience in learning a language to full fluency. And number two, patience in planting a strong church. So patience in learning language and culture. And I'll be honest, this is the one that confuses me the most because the examples of everyone from William Carey to Hudson Taylor to John Payton to Adoniram Judson all speak so very clearly on why language and culture fluency was a value that they did not dodge, that they fully embraced. Listen to Hudson Taylor. He says this, Consider six or eight hours a day sacred to the Lord and His work, and let nothing hinder your giving to this time, the time of language and culture study, till you can preach fluently and intelligibly. China Inland Mission, the one that Hudson Taylor founded, was known for having a high bar to reach in culture and language fluency. Hudson Taylor personally turned away more families that had three or more children because he felt they wouldn't be able to achieve language fluency. Turned them away, godly men and women, because culture and language fluency was so primary in China Inland, Mission, Inland Mission's DNA. Adnaram Judson personally set a goal of 12 hours a day just in language study until he reached full fluency. 12 hours a day until I'm fully fluent. Paul Schlalen wrote an excellent biography on John Payton, and he records Payton's views on language fluency. He says this, 
Among the many difficulties the South Seas missionaries face, no one can penetrate very deeply into the minds and hearts of the people till he has learned to speak to them in their own mother tongue. A missionary is incapable of knowing the thoughts, ambitions, and deepest throbbing desires of the heart without first knowing his manner of speech. Proverbs 18.13 says this, To answer before listening is folly and shame. Translation, to give the gospel and not know what you're speaking into is folly and shame. To walk that path. And this is what Peyton is describing. To get into their mind, to know their deepest desires, to understand what they're thinking before we teach, before we dive into those most important conversations so that the gospel will fall in the way that we know they will understand it. Peyton says this as well, by immersing himself in Tennis, Peyton was following the paradigm of 1 Corinthians 14. The communication of scripture ought to be intelligible to all. This means in the most fundamental sense, the faithful missionaries are willing to learn the language of the people to whom they want to preach the gospel. Even if this takes years of hard work rather than speaking through a translator. Years of hard work rather than speaking through a translator. Which one takes more time? Obviously, learning the language. Translator, you can pick one up in three hours if you got the right amount of money. Peyton says, no, no, no. We're going with the long road. We're going with the patient road. We're learning this to full fluency for the sake of the gospel. This is John Peyton. This isn't Radius. This is John Peyton. And again, that's why we titled this Historic Missions in Today's World. Another one, the Serampore Compact, written by William Carey, Joshua Marshman, and William Ward. This was a compact, this was an agreement that the missionaries that were under these men with the organization that they started, this was a guiding document for hundreds of missionaries for nearly 60 years that they would read three times a year. Just to go over it, to pound these values home, William Carey and all of the other missionaries associated together would read the Serampore Contract three times a year, just to make sure these values were deep, deep, deep within the organization. And right in the middle of that says this, it's very important that we should gain all the information we can of the snares and delusions in which these heathen are held. By this means, we shall be able to converse with them in an intelligible manner, to know their modes of thinking. Sound familiar? Their habits, their propensities, their antipathies, the way in which they reason with God, sin, holiness, the way of salvation, and the future state to be aware of the bewitching nature of their idolatrous worship, feasts, songs, etc. is of highest consequence. If we would gain their attention to our discourse and we would avoid being barbarians to them. What is he referencing when he says barbarians? He's referencing 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14. If you got your Bible, pull that up. 1 Corinthians 14.8. Paul is making an example. He's using something that everyone would agree with to speak to the matter of tongues. It says this, 1 Corinthians 14.8. Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you, unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You'll just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner, sometimes translated barbarian, to the speaker 
and the speaker is a foreigner to me. This term, foreigner, barbarian, where did that come from? The Greeks would hear others of outside languages speaking, and it sounded to them like bar, 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 bar. And that's where the word barbarian came from. And brothers and sisters, here's the thing. If we go to these languages, if we make it to the ends of the earth, and we don't speak their language, at least clearly, we are the foreigner. Our message is a foreign message, and our God is a foreign God. We're the barbarians. And this is what William Carey is pointing to. We cannot come across as the barbarians. We have to take the time to know what we're speaking into and to speak clearly so that it's understood. Patience in learning a language and culture to full fluency. The second one, patience in planning a strong church. Those of you that know my wife and I uh, that have had some time with us know that we spent 13 years over in Yembe Yembe. And we started off learning their language. It took us three years to get uh, up to speed and to know their language and culture. And then we presented from Genesis 1-1 all the way up through the life of Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection. But the part of our ministry that gets the least amount of attention, and there's a variety of reasons for this, and most people don't know, is that from the time that the church was born in 2008, we stayed eight more years. Eight more years in one location, Eight more years with the same group of people, eight more years continuing to translate, continuing to teach, to see that small cluster of believers, that small cluster of disciples gathered into a church. You see, a church is like an infant human child. If it's not fed, if it's not nurtured, if it's not protected, it will die. And to make sure that that church would grow up into maturity so that it could replicate itself so that it could defend itself, those eight years were probably the most substantial time that we spent. Those were heartbreaking years. Working with human beings are hard. It's a hard business working with disciples. It's a hard business raising elders up. But if the church is going to last, that's the period of time I believe that's most significant. But I hear this phrase every once in a while batted around, uh, this phrase that I see on Twitter, Jesus didn't call us to plant churches. He called us to make disciples. And on the face, you hear it and you go, yeah, I remember something in the Great Commission about go and make disciples. On the face of it, it sounds good. But if you understand your scripture and you understand church history, you'll see how bankrupt it is. This phrase is lifted from Matthew 28, 19. It says this, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Correct. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if that's where the passage ends, there's a legitimate case to be made that that's what we're called to do to see the Great Commission fulfilled. We make disciples, and that's it. But the passage doesn't end there. It goes to verse 20, and it says this, And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age teaching them all that I have commanded you, that's the church. The goal isn't just to make disciples. That's a wonderful starting point. It can't be the finishing point. 
We have to be patient. And it's easy. I'll, I'll be honest with you, brothers and sisters. It's easy to see conversions. It's easy to see people saved, to see them gathered into the church. It's kind of like making babies. It's fairly easy to see them grown up into young men and women. That's challenging. That's hard. To see them brought to full maturity. To see them taught to obey everything I have commanded you. And we know this. We know that that was not what the disciples understood to be the Great Commission because that's exactly what Jesus' disciples did. They went out and they did not content themselves with making disciples alone. They gathered them. They taught them. They discipled them. They trained and named elders. They poured themselves into strong churches. Churches take longer. But the church, the establishing of a strong New Testament church, that is the Great Commission. Let's not sell it short by going halfway. To see a strong, viable New Testament church, one. I appreciate so much what my brother Paul Washer says. That's a miracle of God if it happens in less than 10 years. That's a miracle of God to see one strong, viable New Testament church. Will it take longer? Absolutely. Absolutely. But are we in this for the long haul? Or are we in this for something that can be done overnight that will mirror the values that our culture has? I pray that's not the case. Again, Paul Schleyland's excellent biography on Peyton brings this eye-opening account. During the time that Peyton was in Aniwa teaching and seeing conversions toward the end of his time, a revivalism was starting to show up in Scotland. Revivalism is not revival. Revival begins and ends with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit alone, not with methods or techniques. Revivalism on the other hand, is when men try through methodologies to gin up revival through means and methodologies. And time proves which is the imposter and which is the true fruit. So different church leaders were starting to turn the screws on Peyton while he's in Aniwa. Send us statistics. Send us numbers. How many people got saved? How many churches have been planted? And Peyton resisted this. And he wouldn't send them in. And Schleyland documents this. He says this, Think of the temptation Peyton faced to mimic such methods, especially when donors back home expected to hear of instant results. And if Peyton faced the push for quick conversion several generations ago, how much more the missionaries and evangelists of the contemporary church? J.I. Packer conveys what happens when we fall, when we fail to trust in God's sovereignty. We are tempted to be in a great hurry with those who would win to Christ and then, when we see no immediate response to them, to become impatient and downcast and then to lose interest in them and feel that it is useless to spend more time on that group. We spend our time. We go through long seasons without fruit. We plant. We work the soil, but only God gives the increase. But we, we exercise a measure of patience and understanding this is a long-term task. Disciples are the great starting point. Churches are the finishing line. Patience. And then finally, to the third historic value that we see in Scripture and in historic missions today. Perseverance. Perseverance is this strange commodity that many aspire to, but only a few have, and you only find out if you have it when the hard times come. 
Then another one of these strange paradoxes of the Christian life, there seems to be a hardwired rule that the more trials, the more sufferings God puts us through, the more this muscle of perseverance grows. The harder the trials, the more difficult the suffering, sometimes the more frequent our perseverance grows. Romans 5.1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Here it comes. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Sufferings produce perseverance. It's actually through our trials, through our pain, through the quality of enduring and staying, it's through that pain that God produces perseverance in our lives. One aspect of the Radius program that I am so very proud of and I I hold on to tenaciously is this idea of character. We like to say that the program is 40% academic, 60% character. There's a value to learning phonetics, phonemics, principles of translation, business, but there's a greater value in having your internet stripped away for five months. There's a greater value in learning the discipline of getting up early to do an early morning workout. There's a greater value in learning Spanish, going outside of the campus, and sounding foolish for 10 months. Some of our students don't take 10 months to sound foolish. They get better and better at it. But that idea of dying to yourself, of going through small little trials so that the seeds of that are planted and they'll be there for you when you reach bigger trials. Once you make it to the field, something in those processes, something in those trials, something in those stretchings produce the seeds of resilience that will be required later on. The most compelling book that I read all of last year was a book by Cecil Hartley called The Three Mrs. Judsons. I'll be honest, I think this, is, this should be mandatory reading for all teenage Christian girls. Cecil Hartley, Three Mrs. Judsons. And in it, he goes through and he compiles letters and writings from the three women who are married to Adoniram Judson. The first is probably the most well-known, Anne Hasseltine. She married Adoniram and moved to Burma with him, got established in Burma, went through Adoniram's imprisonment with him. She was shrewd in her dealings with the emperor, with the guards. She literally saved Adoniram's life multiple times, and she kept him and their baby girl alive. Shortly after Adoniram was released from prison, she died, and six months later, their daughter died, and that was the end of Adoniram's first family. His third wife was called Emily Chubuk. She was a gifted writer and a poet, and she outlived Adoniram. But the lady I want to focus on to close out this message is his second wife, Sarah Boardman Judson. Sarah was raised in a poor family in New Hampshire, but by God's grace was saved at a young age. She taught herself how to read, and from then on was responsible for the education of her siblings all the way through middle school. Early in her life, 
She had a heart for missions and was convinced of the worthiness of the task. And when she met George Boardman, who was headed to Burma, it was a natural fit. She and George set sail for Burma one week after being married. Imagine that honeymoon. Shortly after arriving in Burma, she gave birth to a baby girl. Her and her husband learned Burmese and eventually the Karin language, a minority people group in Burma, and traveled deep into the mountains to see the Karin believers gathered into churches. Sarah had a gift for languages, and she would end up learning four of them during her 20 years in Burma. When her daughter was two years old, she suddenly contracted the dreaded fever, as it was known, most likely it was yellow fever or malaria, and would end up dying. In all, Sarah would have 11 children, and only six of them would live past two years old. Sarah was extraordinary, though not in the manner that a lot of people think about when it comes to bigger trials, and we'll get to some of those, but in the smaller, daily, regular struggles that come with life as a missionary. Over the 20 years that she was in Burma, she was sick for over half of them. Think about that for half a second. 20 years for 10 years, at least 10 that we know of, she was sick. She was running on half speed, half power, and she stayed. And she kept going, and she learned languages, and she translated things. Pastors and aspiring missionaries, it's not usually death, imprisonment, or kidnappings that knock people out of the race of missions. It's not those things, the high-profile events, that will take people off the field. It's the slow. It's the mundane. It's the false expectations that our members have as they head overseas of what life will be like, not realizing the challenge of smog, if you've ever been to Delhi, humidity, if you've ever been right around the equator of a poor diet affected over years and years, to have to look or be looked at in a particular way, to have your kids always in the minority of the local school, These are the regular sufferings that go unnoticed but end up taking most missionaries out of the race to prepare our members of our local churches that it's the small things, it's the daily, weekly, monthly sacrifices. That's what takes people off the field. That's where the quality of perseverance shows up best. It's not knowing this, the false romanticized expectations that so cripple our missionaries. We have to know these things and we have to step up on these things so that we can prepare them for the long race. But Sarah excelled in the exceptional things as well. The Corinne church continued to grow and uh, her little boy George and her after, uh, or excuse me, her and her husband kept making trips inland to baptize and teach this growing body of believers. But her husband's health started to fade and six years after arriving in Burma, she lost her husband. It was common for widows to return to the home country, but not Sarah. For three years as a single woman with a three-year-old boy, she would hike the mountains of Burma, building up small schools among the Karin, strengthening the church from village to village, all with this little boy that was the only family she had. Till in 1834, she married Adoniram Judson. And there's one part of her biography, and I'll just be honest, uh, that really got to me, that really, um, yeah, it was deep. It was was something that I, I resonated with to a certain degree. 
There's a part in her biography where she talks about sending this little boy who was her entire family when she lost her husband and sending him back to the United States for boarding school when he was eight years old. The part that resonated with me is because I went to boarding school when I was six. And for her to put him on there with the expectation that she would not see him again for five to ten years. Three-month ship voyage from Burma to get back to Boston. And then five to ten years, she wouldn't see him again, possibly, till he's in his late teens, early 20s. And she records this in a letter to her sister when she finally sent her son off. After deliberation accompanied with tears and agony and prayers, I came to the conviction that it was my duty to send my only son, my darling George, and yesterday I bid him a long farewell. Oh, my dear sister, my heart is full, and I long to disburden it in writing you whole pages, but my eyes are rolling down with tears, and I can scarcely hold my pen. I shall never forget his looks as he stood by the door and gazed at me for the last time. His eyes were filling with tears and his little face red with suppressed emotion. But he subdued his feelings, and it was not till he had turned away and was going down the steps that he burst into a flood of tears. I hurried to my room and on my knees with my whole heart, gave him up to God, and my bursting heart was comforted from above. What she couldn't have known at that time, what probably would have been too much to bear, was that's the last time she would see him, at least this side of heaven. And I got to believe that in the back of Sarah Judson's mind was this passage from Luke 18.28. This idea in the, the background of Luke 18.28, when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what must I do uh, to be saved? And Jesus gives him the law. And then he says, I've done all these things. And Jesus says, sell your possessions, give to the poor and come be my disciple. Come follow me. And the rich young ruler, we don't re- the scriptures don't record what he says, but they record his response. He turned away because he was very wealthy. And the passage isn't about wealth. The passage is about putting all things at the master's feet. And I praise God, and I think Sarah Judson praised God for what Peter says following that encounter. See, Peter gets a hard time sometimes because people think his motives are messed up. But for people like Sarah who have walked away from everything, what Peter asks makes sense. Peter says this. Peter says to Jesus in Luke 18, 28, we have left all we had to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children, for the sake of the kingdom of God, will fail to receive many times as much in this age and the age to come, eternal life. What precious balm that must have been for Sarah's heart. No one who has left children will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come. Peter's asking these questions and Jesus is answering, it will be worth it. Stay, stay the course. Stay the course, Sarah. Stay the course, Peter. It'll be real. The goodbyes are real. The pain is real. The separation is real. But the king says it will be worth it. Sufferings produce perseverance. And they produce perseverance 
through the eyes of the one who goes through them and that we get eternal eyes as we start to go through these things. We start to see things through a different lens. I speak at a lot of different churches and routinely someone will come up to me, a good-hearted person. I'm sure this will happen less if people watch this message, but someone usually comes up to me after we talk through the Yembe story and how my wife and I moved in with our coworkers and we built our house out of jungle material and then we built an airfield and then we learned their language and we developed an alphabet for them and then we translated the New Testament into their language And we spent those eight years developing the elders and some good-hearted Christian usually comes up to me afterwards and says something to the effect of, I could never do that. That's incredible. I could just never see myself doing that. And I used to answer, no, 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 you can do this. You can do this. It's all right. Common people can do it. It's a very common thing. I've seen a lot of people. My wife and I are not these incredibly gifted individuals. That's how I used to answer. I don't answer it that way anymore. You know how I answer? I answer, you're right. You couldn't do it today. But God will give you the grace to turn away from that job, to take that first step, to say that I'm heading that direction. Then God will give you the grace to get on the airplane. Then God will give you the grace to learn the language. Then God will give you the grace to stay as you get malaria. Then God will give you the grace to see your son get malaria. And then God will give you the grace for the next step and the next step. This isn't something that happens overnight. It's through the accumulation of small sufferings that perseverance comes. Sarah Judson could never have done this. She could never have done this while she was still in Boston. But through those small, little sufferings, perseverance was produced in her life. You're right. You can't do it today. But if you take that first step, you trust the God who knows all things, who ordains all things, who allows all things into our lives, you trust that God and he'll give you the grace for those types of sufferings. Sarah would live 15 years by Adoniram Judson's side. She had the privilege of translating John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress into Burmese, still in use today. She translated several tracts into Burmese and then into the Peguan and Karen languages and eventually the entire New Testament into the Peguan language. The entire New Testament. That is no small feat. And I close today with an excerpt from the three Mrs. Judsons on Sarah's final journey when she crossed that great river. And I'm going to try and get through this. This is usually very challenging. Sarah became so ill that they decided to travel to America. This is her and her husband, Adoniram, in hopes that the sea air would work its healing and she would have have opportunity to see George, who was now a teenager. They set sail August 26, 1845, with their three oldest children and the intention of leaving them for education in the United States when they returned. They left the three youngest behind, one of whom died before Judson returned. Judson had not been to America now for 33 years. And he was returning only for the sake of his wife. As they rounded the tip of Africa on September 1845, Adoniram recorded her final hours in tender detail. Her mind became liable to wander, but a single word was sufficient to recall and steady her recollection. 
On the evening of the 31st of August, she appeared to be drawing near to the end of her pilgrimage. The children took leave of her and retired to rest. I sat alone beside her bed during the hours of the night, endeavoring to administer relief to the distressed body and consolation to the departing soul. At two o'clock in the morning, wishing to obtain one more token of recognition, I roused her attention and I said, Do you still love the Savior? Oh yes, she replied, I ever love the Lord Jesus Christ. I said again, Do you still love me? She replied in the affirmative by a peculiar expression of our own. Then give me one more kiss, and we exchanged the token of love for the last time. Another hour passed, life continued to recede, and she ceased to breathe. For a moment I traced her upward flight and thought of the wonders which were opening to her view for the first time. On the following morning, no vestige of the island was discernible in the distant horizon. For a few days in the solitude of my cabin with my poor children crying around me, I could not help abandoning myself to heartbreaking sorrow. But the promises of the gospel came to my aid. And faith stretched her view to the bright world. To the bright world of eternal life. And I anticipated a happy meeting with those beloved beings whose bodies were moldering at Amherst and St. Helena, those two wives. If the Great Commission is going to be accomplished, if language groups that populate the ends of the earth are to have a strong New Testament church planted among them, it will not be done via summer missions trips or Jesus film showings or other short-term efforts. All of those have their place in the Christian world but they are unable to bring the clarity of the gospel and the power of the church to places that still exist in darkness, only on the backs of God's people who are willing to walk away from promising careers, families, and safety, and patiently through 15, 20, 30 years work to see churches established. Will we see the Great Commission accomplished? May we as the church reincorporate and reinforce these historic values into our mission's DNA. Preparation, patience, perseverance, to see churches planted where none exist today. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the examples of ones who went before us, be they in scripture or be they in recent history. Father, we know that you are about the task of seeing your name made great where it is not. May we as the church be faithful in raising up our members, be faithful in giving them these values that will help them see fruit by your grace in locations that are so very hard to work among. Father, give us long-term eyes, give us eternal eyes that can see past the light and momentary that can see past this world. Give us eyes that can see heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.